ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. International opinion will ride one way or the other very much on this operation and that's why it's much more than a military operation. It's a political one as well. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbents, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvellis from RM Breakfast and Q&A, joining you from the lands of the Ngunnawal people and Parliament House right here with... David Spears. <laughs> You're pointing right at me. We're sitting in the same studio, which is uh, an, an unusual occurrence, but a wonderful occurrence. Look, I'm filling in for Fran once again, and uh, also here on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri Nations in our Canberra Parliament House studio. Great to be here. It's great to have you, David. Now... The Israel-Gaza war has clearly escalated. Tensions are also intensifying at home. It's full on. Reports of Islamophobia, but really acutely anti-Semitism as well, are increasing and protests are growing across the country. And while they have predominantly been peaceful, uh, broadly, there are tensions at home that boiled over, I think, um, in a couple of instances, particularly over the weekend, which we'll get to. Cameron Stewart, the chief international correspondent for the Australian newspaper, will join us shortly to discuss that. But let's talk about a couple of domestic things that have really unfolded this week. Mm. Uh, the government has been focusing on some other elements that I think it's tried to sort of take some control over the agenda on, hoping to focus on things that it thinks that people you know, probably feel might be neglected. RoboDebt was one thing. Uh, RoboDebt, of course, the automated debt collection tool which used income averaging to unlawfully raise alleged debts against more than half a million people. Now, that was a huge issue. The government has said this week it has accepted or accepted in principle all 56 recommendations made by the Royal Commission. So that's not exactly a surprise, but I think, you know, David, obviously, I even think the timing of making sure that's shared this week is about them saying, hey, we're really serious about these sorts of reforms. Yeah, the only thing on RoboDebt we didn't get was uh, the names or details around the 16 public servants who are now going to be investigated by the Public Service Commissioner for their role in the scheme. But I guess we'll find all of that out uh, at some point down the track. All of this, PK, overshadowed by the um, the big story this week that's dominated Parliament. And that's the fallout from the High Court decision ruling that indefinite immigration detention is now unlawful. It overturns a 20-year-old precedent from the High Court and it really has left the government scrambling, I think it is fair to say, to uh, work out what to do. It has to release a whole bunch of immigration detainees. Mm -hmm. Today we're up to 83, but it seems every day the number kind of creeps up. It does seem to change, yeah. Yeah, so maybe that will go up uh, in the coming days. But right now, 83 have been released. We're told that includes three murderers. Uh, It includes uh, several sex offenders, pedophiles, people smugglers. Um, The government says it had to release them. We'll we'll get to this, but the opposition reckons it perhaps didn't. There might have been a way around this either way. Again, as we record this, the government is introducing legislation to put them all on tighter 
visa conditions, those who have been released. Now, um, the minister, the immigration minister, Andrew Giles, has just introduced the legislation. I quickly scribbled down as he was talking Great. what some of the details are, because they were a bit a bit funny about this this morning, weren't they? Mm. They didn't want to talk uh, on, um, on your program. stood or... up and, and gave a press conference, but it was very short, no yeah. question. Anyway, they briefed the, the opposition just after 7am today, and uh, as I say, they've just introduced the bill. So what does it include? Um, uh, well, they all can face uh, ankle bracelets, mm-hmm. tight curfews, Mm -hmm. Uh, They have to inform the department of their living arrangements, who's in the house with them, if any new housemates come in, and details about who they are. If they want to travel interstate, they have to inform the department. Um, They they have to get approval to work with children or other vulnerable people, with biological agents or chemical agents. You can kind of see what all these, you know, red flag concerns go to. Um, what else? Any any significant change in their financial situation, they have to inform the department. So all of this is about keeping a pretty tight rein on these people. I guess it's better than being in detention, right? Um, but, you know, yes, these are onerous conditions that are being placed on them. And it's a new visa category called a removal pending visa. And basically, if a country is found that they can go to, off off they'll go and they have to agree to go. But the problem is these people can't be. They've been unsuccessfully able to find anywhere to take them. It's hard to see them ever being able to, in most cases, no, well, find that another have, country to that take That would have them. happened by now, right? Yeah, so they'll live on these new visas and all these tight conditions indefinitely, unless the High Court reckons this is a problem too, but I I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's down the track, (laughs) right? But what's interesting is, let's just, you know, political podcast, we're going to talk about the politics. The politics has been intense over this issue, huge, and, and, you know, the the government at the beginning, when this Mm. first decision first was made, was saying, this is the High Court's decision. You know, we didn't want it to happen. We were against it, but we have to follow the mm. High Court's judgment. They have changed their tune to this fast-tracked legislation. The coalition has naturally leapt on the opportunity to increase the pressure on the government on their favourite territory, I think, oh, hands yeah. down, favourite territory of Peter Dutton. He's always in a happy place when he's talking national security. Uh, he says the government should have prepared, been prepared with a legislative response straight away, also said suggested the Prime Minister shouldn't leave Australia until the matter is resolved. Here he is. And we've now got a government who was asleep at the wheel and has allowed 81 hardcore criminals out into the community. There should have been a legislative response to this issue and the government should have been dealing with this in the run-up to the decision being handed down by the High Court. But none of that work has been done. The, the, the Prime Minister should not go to APEC until this issue is dealt with. Okay, David. Now, and this goes to the other twin issue, if you like. He's been pointing out that, you know, Albanese travels too much so that that he could get that one in at the end. He's tying a lot of issues together. Look, the PM did leave late yesterday for APEC. Look, I don't think it's a visit he particularly wanted to make, but... PMs have always gone to APEC except once when Julia Gillard's father died and she had to cut short the trip. Mm. Um, APEC's kind of an Australian it's, it's Australia has a, Exactly. It goes back to the Keating years, how it always went to them. Um, look, uh, it, with the US hosting this one, it would have been a bit of a snub to Biden not to go. So, look, uh, Albanese's gone. But his, his constant travel right now is a problem. He knows it. Uh, everyone knows it. So, you know, you can see why Peter Dutton's gone there. Anyway, the point on this high court ruling that the opposition's making is that the government should have had... Well, this legislation legislation we're just talking about that's that's being debated today and presumably will be rushed through today um, is too little too late. It's 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 not enough. It should have come earlier, even uh, immediately after the High Court ruling. And the opposition, as I mentioned, also reckoned they should be 
finding a way to keep them in detention. Now, the government argues they can't do that because that goes to the essence of the High Court ruling. You cannot detain these people indefinitely. James Patterson's the Shadow Home Affairs Minister. He's suggested things like um, a high, the, the high-risk terrorist offenders framework that we have in place, where you could apply to a court to have someone detained, he says, in the criminal justice system. A judge would have to sign off on that, different to the immigration system. There'll be legal debate about that sort of idea and whether you'd have to apply that to not just immigration mm. uh, detainees, uh, non-citizens, but to citizens well. Don't mm. forget there's a heap of Australians. People are always being released from jail after their sentence. Murderers, pedophiles amongst them. That's right. <laughs> and would you have to apply that to all of them as well as these unlawful non-citizens? Uh, that's where it gets a little bit uh, tricky. The opposition certainly believes there should be a different standard when it comes to those who aren't Australians who are in, you know, uh, who've committed serious offences. I think the politics on this is is kind of plays to their uh, traditional strengths, and it's easy for them to kind of get runs on, yeah. you know. Pedophiles and murderers sound pretty scary. Oh, yeah. Look, and um, it, it is a concern. And this is why they were locked up in, in immigration detention. But again, Claire O'Neill, the Home Affairs Minister, says they really don't have a choice but to release them. Now what they're doing is trying to put as much uh, condition monitoring mm. and, and, and so on uh, on them as, as they can. Here's some of the brief remarks she made this morning. They include the ability of the Commonwealth to impose ankle monitoring bracelets. They include the power for the Commonwealth to impose very strict curfews. For the first time, there are criminal sanctions imposed to the breaking of visa conditions and there are jail terms attached to the end of, the, uh, to the end of that. So for the people who are released from detention, we did not want to let these people out of detention, but we have a simple message for them. We will set the strictest possible conditions for you. If you, if you do not follow them, you will end up back in jail. So that's Claire O'Neill. So, David, OK, the opposition is going to push for these changes. If they don't get them up, and I don't think yeah. they will, are they really going to stand in the way of the legislation? No, I doubt it. I think this, this will go through, and probably by the time you listen to this, it will have gone through. The Greens aren't happy on the other side. They're saying this is anti-refugee legislation. It's rushed. It certainly is rushed. Um, so look, yeah, they're, they're concerned about it. And look, uh, as I signalled earlier, we don't know whether this will be challenged, this new legislation, and it'll end up before the High Court. But I suppose that could be months down the track. And in the meantime, the conditions will at least be in place on those who have been released. It's been a really difficult issue for the government uh, politically. Yes, Peter Dutton has gone in very hard, as you say. No surprise. This is his favourite patch. He, he, he's, I think, quite effectively tied this with the government being distracted on other issues. It could have acted faster, is his point, and he's going to keep hammering that. Now, the other thing he did, and we're going to get into this with our guest, mm. is tie it all up in a bow with also a rise in anti-Semitism. I think that's more problematic. I think tying it to that has been more problematic. <laughs> I think so. Mm. Uh, and it's been described widely as overreach. But it does go to a substantive issue, which is going on in the community. Mm. I have not seen the Prime Minister fired up like he was in the Parliament Oof. over this one. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah, so this was Wednesday afternoon. Peter Dutton kind of telegraphed the punches in the morning. He held a press conference here in Canberra. First time in more than three months that he's held a press conference in uh, in Parliament House. That tells you he's feeling pretty confident to front the press and you know, a general spray about the government on all sorts of fronts, including this High Court stuff, but also the rise in anti Semitism, the PM's not doing enough to have a united caucus standing up against this. And then in, in question time, um, you know, not even halfway through, a few questions in, he interrupts question time to move this motion with the same points being made. But 
linking the the High Court and the community concern around that ruling with the anti-Semitism was one issue. Accusing the Prime Minister of not doing enough about the anti-Semitism, that really got under Anthony Albanese's skin. And you saw him hit back. And unlike a press conference in Parliament, yeah, the other side gets a go. And boy, did he have a go. The Prime Minister really gave it to him. Shall we bring in our guest? Let's do it. Cameron Stewart is the Chief International Correspondent at The Australian and joins us now. Welcome to the Party Room, Cam. Thank you. Cam, um, as the horrors, and I think that's the right word, of the Israel-Gaza war continue to mount, domestic tensions are really starting to boil over in, in some disturbing ways, I think. I want to unpack the domestic political implications with you shortly, but I want to first start with actually what's happening on the ground where it's happening in Gaza, Israel launching what they called a precise and targeted operation against Hamas inside Gaza's Al-Shifa hospital, the largest hospital in Gaza 24 hours later. We're still a little unclear on what's unfolding, aren't we? And, and really, we're recording this on a Thursday. I want to be clear because this is the thing in the fog of war. There will be more that emerges um, in terms of evidence and qualification. But this really was a, a huge ramp up, wasn't it, Cam? It was. I think this is a critical moment in this conflict, PK. Um, really, uh, it's a critical moment on two levels. One, Israel has always said that there is uh, a, a Hamas command and control centre underneath the, the hospital in the tunnels. White House has verified that independently. Um, we're now hearing unfolding stories of um, of armaments that the Israelis have found, etc. But as you say, it's very much an unfolding story at the moment. So mil- militarily, it's supposed to be a fairly important moment as far as Israel claims. Uh, but also politically, I think it's a really important moment because, you know, the, the taking of um, this large hospital, if that's in fact what Israel does, is a big moment in the sense that uh, there's been massive concern, understandably, including from the US, about um, patients, doctors, civilians who are sheltering there about their lives. And in fact, the US said do not um, launch an air raid on this hospital. So the only way Israel can take out the Hamas uh, operators in the hospital is by going surgically, pardon the pun there, but going underneath and actually taking them out very carefully. Now, as we speak, that has been the case so far, but um, international opinion will ride one way or the other very much on this operation, and that's why it's much more than a military operation. It's a political one as well. Yeah, and it's a, a difficult one, Cam. I suppose you know, one of, if not the most difficult operations so far in this war, I, I think is spot on in what you just said there about the weight of uh, international opinion really will ride on how this goes. If, they, if the Israeli forces do remove or neutralise what they say is there uh, from Hamas, do we know what happens then? Do they, do they stay in some sort of security control of the hospital and keep it running or what happens at that site? Well, what we know so far, the Israelis have said that they've um, bought medical equipment with them, uh, Arabic speakers. It does look like they are going to try to bring in medical equipment to the hospital. I mean, this is actually an opportunity, if, if the Israelis do get control of the hospital, to, to bring in doctors, to bring in medical supplies, to actually, as far as international opinion was concerned, David, as what you're saying is it would give them an opportunity to, to do something positive in that respect. Mm. So, But also take I, some civilian control in Gaza? 
Yes, and take some civilian control in Gaza as well. I mean, this is they're moving fairly fast, it seems, on the ground offensive. They've taken parliament buildings, they've taken government buildings in the last couple of days, uh, and they do seem to be moving faster than a lot of people expected. So I think they would try to, Israel would try to take control of the hospital and would try and obviously uh, uh, you know, save the patients inside it. You can't imagine that they would move on and leave the hospital as is because I think, again, that would really expose them to international criticism. I think that's right. Well, I want to turn, if we can, to the domestic front, but on this issue and the implications of it, because it is very much almost sort of it's framing politics at the moment, I think, this war, and it's overwhelming MPs because the community sentiments are so strong. Mm. The government is facing sustained pressure from both sides, I think, over its response to the unfolding events. On Insiders on Sunday with David, the Foreign Minister, Penny Wong, really changed incrementally but still changed previous calls for a humanitarian pause and indicated she'd like to see, you know, she was very careful about her words, but the first steps towards the ceasefire, here she is. We called for humanitarian pauses as a necessary first step. Uh, uh, you know, I've seen uh, the, the comments of President Macron overnight. Mm. Uh, what I would say is we all want to take the next steps towards a ceasefire, but it cannot be one-sided. The next steps towards a ceasefire cannot be one-sided. Look, uh, some Jewish leaders in Australia were critical uh, of what she said. Cam, what did you make of it and how careful Penny Wong was being with uh, what she said? Well, it's interesting because I think what the government wants to say is that they are disappointed with the level of the Israeli uh, military retaliation on Gaza and the number of uh, civilian deaths. I mean, that's consistent with every Western government in the world at the moment, including the United States. Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, said Mm. the other day there's been too many deaths in Gaza. I think Penny Wong's framing of it with the word ceasefire is um, a bit problematic for the government in the sense that certainly that's different to um, the UK and the US position, but also she didn't flesh out what that means. I mean, ceasefire couldn't mean, does that mean a a one-week ceasefire, a three-week ceasefire, a permanent ceasefire. And, of course, if it's a permanent ceasefire, then that does mean that Israel would not achieve its military goal of knocking out Hamas militarily. Mm. And the thing is, that would be unacceptable for Israel and probably for the wider Western community. So I'm not sure that was the wisest word for Penny Wong to use, but, you know, we know what the sentiment of the government is. I just don't think they're enunciating it as well as they could. No, but that's because they're walking a tightrope. They are overwhelmed Mm. in some electorates with complaints that they're basically not calling out the human tragedy and they are a Labor government, this is impossible for them to manage. They are so overwhelmed with this issue. I reckon it's really hurting them, Cameron. That's no doubt part of the the response here, isn't it? That that is. uh, I think they probably need to find a a better form of words. But I think that there's nothing... It's interesting. There's not much nuance in this debate. And, And as you say, the government is walking in absolute tightrope here because this is a hugely passionate issue. I, you know, I haven't reported on such a passionate issue for many, many years. It's, it's both sides of the equation here in Australia do not even consider the word nuance. You know, there's not. No, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's interesting because it would be perfectly legitimate for someone to be hugely critical of the Hamas attack on Israel on October 7 and also um, be critical of the extent of Israel's response to that attack in Gaza. But very rarely do you hear both sides enunciated. You know, you have a situation, uh, I think, with perhaps the pro-Palestinian, more the organisers 
of the rallies. I think they have a habit of effectively erasing the Hamas side of the story. And I think also there's been a problem in as far as that is concerned with distinguishing between the politics of the Israeli government and the mm. fact of someone being Jewish. And I think that's really inflamed a lot of the situation here in Australia, the inability to uh, make that distinction, which is fascinating because a lot of Australian Jews are actually hugely critical of Benjamin Netanyahu. <laughs> yes, of course. And, right. and, he, and his government. Uh, you know, it's a very right-wing nationalist government. You can argue it's been quite destructive in the West Bank as far as settlements are concerned. Yep. And yet uh, we are seeing, unfortunately, a lot of Australian Jews targeted just because they're Jewish. I was at the Caulfield protest last Friday and there were pretty, some pretty ugly scenes there. Yeah, well... Uh... It's, it's, look, it's a good point. Any community, including the Jewish community, is going to have a range of different views on all of this. Within the government, there, yes, are a, a range of views or, or different emphasis. Ed Husick, uh, a senior minister who has been raising concern, alarm about the large number of civilian casualties in Gaza, in particular the attacks on hospitals. Um, he has been suggesting again this week that uh, Israel's campaign against Hamas is being undermined by what it's doing. But I've got to say, 4,000 children losing their lives, they are not Hamas. And, uh, and this is a real concern. And I don't think it's uh, just a concern for me as an MP of the Muslim faith. And that was the Minister for Science and Industry, Ed Husick. And in the last few weeks, we've really seen this really ramp up, as, as David was saying. You mentioned to us what you'd seen in Caulfield, Cam, if I can kind of go back to that point you were making. Caulfield, just for those in other parts of the country who may not know, because it's Melbourne, not everyone lives in Melbourne. Caulfield is a, is a, has a high number of Jewish Australians who live there. And there were some ugly scenes, uh, as you say, and that really, I think, has changed the debate. Just walk me through it. Look, yes, um, about 200 pro-Palestinian uh, protesters turned up in Caulfield to protest. They protested the uh, burning down of a, a burger store, which a, a pro-Palestinian man owned. They thought it was a hate crime. The police said otherwise. But either way, the bottom line is they were in Caulfield, a very Jewish area, 40% Jewish suburb, really the heartland of Jewish Melbourne. And uh, that was obviously never going to turn out well. Um, and then the chanting, we you know th things like uh, from the river to the sea, which of course the uh, Jewish community takes as a, um, a wiping Israel off the map. It became very, very heated. It became very ugly. Police struggled to take control. And it really was, uh, you looking, I was just standing there watching it and just thinking, wow, this is just the Middle East, the, the passions of the Middle East are just being played out here in suburban Melbourne. It was quite a disturbing thing. And there were, unfortunately, uh, the minority, but there were, uh, a fair few racial slurs being thrown around. It wasn't just a political rally. And the impact it had on Jewish Australians is intense. And I think it's important to explain that the, I've spoken to many people who are, as you said, not Benjamin Netanyahu lovers. They are concerned about how this war is being played out. They are worried that it's in their name, some of them, but they were scared to leave their house genuinely scared, fearful. They say they've never seen anything like this. That first time they feel like they've experienced anti-Semitism that is intergenerational and they've experienced. You're in that area too. Um, like, Cam, you know this part of Melbourne. Is this the sentiment of this community? Yeah, I do, PK. There's a lot of very, very nervous people. They've, they've never seen this in their lifetime. They've had, you know, their, their grandparents. I mean, as you know, there's lots of Holocaust survivors in that part of Melbourne. Um, 
and they've had their you know grandparents, great grandparents talk about this, but it's only been uh, a discussion around the table that the sort of history of, of the Jewish people. But now uh, they really are seeing a very confrontational uh, uh, moment where they're worried that um, some of the pro-Palestinian supporters have taken a sort of, uh, if you like, a righteous hair about it and are not distinguishing between the politics and the people. And that's what they're concerned about. Look, after what happened in uh, Caulfield and uh, there was also, a, what was it, a, a, a motorbike? Yeah, um, in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. Uh, yeah, um, convoy, if you like, went into the eastern suburbs of Sydney, another uh, Jewish community uh, area. We saw the Prime Minister condemn both of those uh, for being provocative, but it wasn't enough for the opposition, uh, and particularly given the government is trying to deal with this social cohesion issue by sending a a message of unity. Uh, Yes, it condemns that sort of thing and any sort of anti-Semitism, but also is concerned, as as we talked about Penny Wong's language about um, some of Israel's behaviour. The opposition has been highly critical. For Peter Dutton, it's very much his focus is uh, trying to stamp out the anti-Semitism, siding with Israel, siding with the Jewish community in Australia. And in question time in Parliament on Wednesday afternoon, he really launched into the Prime Minister and it was quite a moment. Let's just have a listen to a bit of the back and forth there. The House, one, expresses its grave concern at the vicious rise of anti-Semitic vilification in our country and the breakdown in social cohesion occurring in our communities. Two, expresses its grave concern that social disharmony has reached dangerous levels and that community safety is now at significant risk. Three, condemns the Prime Minister's failure to show the strong leadership required to overcome divisions within his own caucus to stamp out anti-Semitism and bring our country together. The weaponisation or attempt to weaponise anti-Semitism in this chamber and make it a partisan issue is frankly beyond contempt. Frankly beyond contempt. Cam, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, there was fired up in response to the opposition leader who had accused him of not standing up uh, and being united with the Jewish community. What did you make of where Peter Dutton went there and and how the Prime Minister responded? I think Peter Dutton uh, was playing a lot of politics there. He knows that um, the Prime Minister, and in fact Labor, uh, is in a difficult position here because obviously there is a lot of pro-Palestinian sentiment within the Labor Party. We see that rank and file. Uh, it's often, often, you know, the, the provisions towards Palestine in Labor Party policy have always been very sympathetic. But I don't think that the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's angry response, I think, was, was understandable because I don't see that um, the Prime Minister or Penny Wong have been soft in their denunciations of, of anti-Semitism. Uh, I think they've been very careful to uh, link it with um, Islamophobia and that's actually probably upset the opposition to some degree because we are probably seeing a bit more anti-Semitism than we are Islamophobia at the moment. But either way, Albanese is very sensitive to this argument and Dutton is aware of the vulnerabilities of Labor and he is really pushing it. He really is to the maximum effect. Cam, love always having you on the podcast. You are a fountain of wisdom. Thank you. Thanks, Cam. Pleasure. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. Our bells are ringing. That means it's time for question time. This week's question comes from Matt. Here it is. As an alternative to interest rates being raised all the time, would it be possible for the government to insist that people put more money into their superannuation to take some of that money out of circulation and bring inflation down. 
Oh, I love this question, Matt, because it's a really good question. David, it's a radical idea. Yeah, look, a, a whole bunch of different ideas have been bubbling around since interest rates started going up, unsurprisingly. People uh, uh, you know, don't much like interest rates going yeah, and up. And they don't like the banks they being the like, beneficiaries. It, well, yeah, arguably the banks, um, yeah, well, they, they, they do benefit to a degree. But this idea, I've, I've heard it a few times. Uh, it is an interesting idea mm. because it would mean that down the track we get the money back. Yeah, that's if, right. If it's in our but super. You start yet to use it straight away. Now, a couple of problems uh, here. I, I think, yes, it does mean money taken out of the economy now to reduce inflation, put um, you know, take some of the heat out, save for later. The issue is the detail. How much could you put into super? Would you have to lift contribution caps to allow that to happen because we were only allowed to put in so much each year? Would that then benefit the wealthy mm. and particularly those older who are either in retirement or near retirement? They can then access it and spend it because they're the rules of superannuation. Would working age and lower income Australians be again disadvantaged? Oh, um, when you articulate it like that, you see all of the unintended consequences yeah, perhaps the, of the idea. Yeah, that's not to say that you couldn't tweak all the rules to make it just yeah. right. But it'd be, you'd end up with an incredibly complex superannuation system. And about it's 200 campaigns complex. against it. <laughs> no, well, that's right. That's right. Um, look, not to say it's a terrible idea, but when you when you look at it with the detail, it gets pretty difficult. Yeah, to see I, th- how you I do think it. that's absolutely true. And there are so many. Mm. This is the thing. Sometimes ideas look flashy. Like that's you know on face value, the idea of not having just the blunt blunt instrument yeah. of the Reserve Bank lifting interest rates and then hitting the same group of people all the time. But the unintended consequences of of really significant policy change like that always ends up biting you. Good question, though, uh, Matt. Really appreciate it. Remember, you can follow The Party Room and send in your questions uh, and you can listen to The Party Room on the ABC Listen app so you never miss an episode. That's right. David, thanks so much. And we'll be back next week. Catch you later. Thanks, PK.